James 2 begins the, the first example of this pure and undefiled religion. And so our first point this morning is number one, faith and favoritism are incompatible. Faith and favoritism are incompatible. The world loves to honor the rich, and they love to neglect the poor. James is saying that if the church isn't careful enough, this may soon become the sin the church has to deal with also. And in fact, favoritism and partiality was a key issue within the church that James is talking about. In this context, we see it based on the rich and on the poor, but in other instances, we base on we base the church that we attend or the things that we follow on whose teaching with the bend we have towards a particular way or a particular style with a sense of a, a different type of worship, a certain kids program, or they have this and they have that. Here's the reality. You will always find something wrong with the church, except for this one. No, I'm kidding. You will especially find something wrong with the church that you are a part of. But I think that's why God focuses so much in on the local church and being a part of the local community that you live in and finding a church there as well. Because we, we tend to gravitate towards those preconceived ideas about how church should be done. But the way church should be done is found in Acts 2. Starting in verse 42, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, many wonders and signs. People were being healed, and they were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together. They had all things in common, and they were selling their possessions, belongings, and distributing them to the needs of the church. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Don't make a secondary issue an issue that becomes primary. We tend to see something secondary and try to make it a primary issue in the church. And so styles of worship, the, the style of a sermon, the type of kids' ministry curriculum or program or whatever else that might look like, those are all, pref those are all preferences. Those are not necessities. The necessities right here are in verse 42. Devoting ourselves to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, and to community, and to prayer. Those are the four things that will establish a church. And if you have found those four things in the church then that is where you should stay and root yourself in that church. As much as James talks about it here, we also see it displayed in Acts chapter 10 when Peter sits down to eat a meal with non-Jewish people, which was very much frowned upon in that culture. Jews ate with the Jews. Gentiles ate with the Gentiles. The cheerleaders ate with the cheerleaders. That was kind of the whole thing. We, we all saw that through school. The jocks had one side of the, of the school and the... Um, the meatheads had one and the football guys and the soccer guys and the cheerleaders and the pretty girls and the social media people, like all these different types of like little cliques that were around the church or around the school and probably around the church. And so for their culture, they didn't eat. Jewish people did not eat with other non-Jewish people. And so in Acts 10, Peter is confronted with this reality of sharing a meal with a Gentile. But he didn't want to defile himself by eating something, as it says in Acts 10, that those Gentiles eat. Already, 
has discrimination, already has favoritism in his heart. We see this in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, when in verses 10 through 12, Paul is telling them, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. For it, it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. What were they fighting about? What were they arguing about? What I mean is that each one of you says this. I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. They were arguing about who is a better person to follow, and this was inside the church. And this is something that we still see to this very day. Well, I don't listen to that band, but I listen to Phil Wickham for sure. I don't listen to Bethel, but I'll listen to Hillsong. Or I'll, I'll, I'll listen to that pastor, but I won't listen to that podcast. Hey, you should listen to this guy, but don't listen to that guy. That's not the way to go. It doesn't matter who you watch, who you listen to, as long as the conclusion you come up with is, I love Jesus more than I did before I heard this. Often, we tend to fall in love with the messenger rather than the message. We end up following the messenger. Well, wherever he goes, wherever she goes, whatever he does, and whatever place he eats, and whatever place he goes, and whatever he follows, and whatever news thing that he listens to, you see, you will find more comfort, you will find actual hope, and you will experience true endurance when Christ is the only one you seek after. In this context, some say that it was a Sunday church service where the ushers had seen a rich person coming into the church and they said, stop everything. This rich guy gets a front row seat. He needs to be right there in the front row, which is interesting that our front rows are empty. Have you, I'm just, have you noticed that? Like, you need to sit front row, okay? Like, someone, just do it. Like, I'm talking to no one here. Hi, how's it going? Nice to meet you. First time here, I can tell. Sit in the front row. But that was the whole point. And then afterwards, what was happening historically is they would get the rich guy to go meet with the pastor and like, oh, hey, how can we collaborate? You've got money. I've got, the, I've got God. Like, how can we work this out together? When at the same time, a poor person was entering and what was happening? Oh, there's a seat in the back. You can here take the corner seat out there. You know, what? I think the TV screens are out in the foyer. You can, you can sit out there if you'd like. It's probably better for you out there anyway with your type or whatever it might look like. You see, those who love God also know that it should be a fuel for a love for others. Jesus talked about this kind of idea when he talked about, um, you've heard it said before, don't commit adultery, don't murder. And they're like, well, duh, like, okay, we can't do that. But he goes even further and he says, but if in your heart you hate your brother or if in your heart you lust after someone, you've already committed the crime. And so he's trying to get at the heart, and he says, but I tell you that if you've done this in your heart, you've already, it's as if you've already committed it. When we look at Deut Deuteronomy 10, this gives us light into what God is after, for he says, for the Lord your God is the God of all gods. He is the Lord of all lords, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God who is not partial, and he takes no bribe. You see, that was specifically there for that context because in the temple, a lot of the priests were taking bribes. They were taking bribes based on someone's status, based on someone's bank account, based on someone's race, and they were saying, oh, well, we'll give you the better treatment if you do this thing for us and make us look better than we actually are. Verse 18 of Deuteronomy 10, he executes justice 
for the fatherless and the widow, and he loves the sojourner, the alien, giving him food and clothing. Love the sojourner, therefore, for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. Leviticus 19.15 says, You shall do no injustice in court. You shall not be partial to the poor and defer to the great, but in righteousness you shall judge your neighbor. So the question is, does favoritism still exist in the church today? Yes, absolutely, 100%. It seems the belief behind the practice is that more favor will be earned if I favor someone of a certain position, party, or place. If I favor the favorite, the favor might be returned. You look at influencers and social media. Recently, I, I, I got a few emails, which I was kind of flattered by, but also like, do I, like, do I take the bait, you know? Like, you've, you've heard of clickbait before, and it's this thing like, oh my gosh, like, check this thing out. It's like, oh my gosh, what is it? Oh, it's spam. Oh, okay, my computer just melted to the ground. That's great. But I, I got an email from this company who had just recently been on Shark Tank, and they're like, hey, we know, like, you know, you, you're uh, involved with nutrition, and you have type 1 diabetes and all these other things. Like, we want to give you a bunch of our product, and we just want you to put it on social media. And I'm like, I don't... Like, I got like a thousand followers. I don't even know how many followers I have. And they're like, we, we know that you're an influencer. And I'm like, how, first of all, how'd you get my email? Second of all, like, what? Like, this doesn't make sense. I'm not an influencer. I'm not the, the social media guy you're looking for. But then I was also flattered, like, wow, like, what an honor. Like, maybe I should do this. Maybe this is the big break I've been looking for my whole life. I can't get on Shark Tank, but I can support a company that was on there before. And so it's this idea of wanting more followers, more recognition. They say that nothing is ever free, even though they want to give you a free product. It's ultimately because they want more recognition for their product or whatever that might look like. You see, the things we do for recognition will eventually go unnoticed. The virality of social media. You may be a star one second, but you'll be replaced by a meme in the next. This type of favoritism, specifically in the church, that James is talking about was about being poor or rich. In Acts chapter 10, it was about gender and race. And then even in other parts of the, of the Bible, we also see it about bank account and gender and race as well. And so we see this idea of rejecting one while receiving another. And the belief is that success comes from favor with the rich and not with the poor. I mean, think about it. It's not the get poor quick scheme. It's the get-rich-quick scheme. What can I possibly learn from the poor when the real question is, why do I sense a need to learn from the rich? They've grown a startup company into a billion-dollar empire. Maybe someone's weathered the storm. They've succeeded in everyone else's opinion. They beat the odds. It's the potential Cinderella story. It's a Hollywood film in the making. The rich seem to have plans, vision, and execution to get it done. The poor seem lazy and insignificant, but Jesus reminds us that when you serve the least of these, you are serving him in the kingdom of God. James again is talking to believers about their discrimination and their favoritism. Call it what you want, it exists. And it seems to me that these issues will not go away entirely because the world we live in allows this behavior of favoritism to be rewarded. And the church has taken notice and has assumed that this reward could be theirs too, but the lasting treasure is the one not fashioned by this world. 
And it's also clear what we actually should treasure, as Jesus said in Matthew 6. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. When was the last time you saw a magazine at the register checkout highlighting the life of a poor person. You've never seen it because it was never a life to look forward to having. It was always the rich and what house they bought, what house they sold, what cars they're, they're buying, what divorce took or what, what divorce was the fastest or whatever that might look like. We're fascinated with the rich and famous because they seem to be at the top of the social ladder everyone is trying to climb. This fascination with the rich is what James describes as receiving face. In fact, uh, theologians say that this word that James uses is a word that he came up with on his own. Like he added a word into into the dictionary almost, and it was like, well, he's receiving face. Because this person is an actual person that they're referring to in James 2. He walked in with all this gold on his hands. He had the top hat. He had the cane. He got out of the Bentley in the parking lot. He had all these things. And they saw this and they were attracted to it. And so this rich person mentioned in James 2 was considered a gold finger. He had so much jewelry and he wore so much gold that the attention of everyone turned from the pulpit onto this person. The deception of entertaining the rich is that it causes us to become more insecure than we were before. Favoritism is a sin. The Bible tells us that favoritism leads also to evil thoughts. Because too often we show favor based on what someone wears, what they look like, how much money they have, their intelligence, their athleticism, or other standards and distinctions. But God calls those evil thoughts. Because favoritism distorts our view of others ourselves, and God. John Parrott, the pastor in Minnesota, describes favoritism's effect in three ways. Number one, favoritism deifies others. It gives this deity-like substance to someone when we favor them that doesn't belong to them. Favoritism tells us other people are great based on a certain criteria we've created in our minds. It makes these people appear to be greater than normal people, And to be sure, there are people who are more uniquely gifted in certain areas than we are, but they are still sinful image bearers just like you and me. Number two is that favoritism devalues who we are. Favoritism devalues who we are because favoritism always tells us that we are less than great because we fall short of that same criteria. Those people we view as great tell us we aren't great because of our flawed perspective on greatness. Even though your definition of greatness may vary from another's, John Parrott says you feel less valuable because you don't possess what they have. And then number three, favoritism dethrones God. In short, he says favoritism replaces God and makes us the judge. We are the one who determines another's worth. We decide who is valuable and who is not. We get to treat others with favor and others not so favorable. Favoritism is so offensive because it attempts to dethrone God and enthrone us. Favoritism often causes us to forget two crucial things. One, that you are fearfully and wonderfully made with 
the unique gifting that God has given to you. And secondly, that Jesus is making the, the playing field level for all people. I think it's a way of recognizing that we need God to graciously punch us in the gut, to get our attention, that our focus might be off of the person and onto another, God himself. So what are the reasons for rejecting favoritism in our culture? Because favoritism, discrimination, whatever you want to call it, has no place in the kingdom of God. We cannot look like a world that Christ is constantly reversing our allegiance from. We want to look like the world, we want to act like the world, but we don't want the world. We want God, and we want to use this algorithm, this equation, to help us be more successful in life. To have favoritism is a violation of the law of love, which Jesus clearly communicates as loving God and loving your neighbor as yourself. And then the person asked Jesus in that passage, and who is my neighbor? We're faced with the simplicity of our neighbor being anyone and everyone. And if we are to ask this question, or if in the context of this chapter in James, we ask, and who is the poor person that I should be more considerate about? It seems we find ourselves trying to dismiss a particular group of poor people because it's too easy to make judgments about someone's appearance. To make any judgment at all is not in any way loving your neighbor as yourself. Favoritism itself is present any time we are making judgments about people based on external appearance. Whether it's according to how they dress, general physical appearance, color of skin, or a host of other characteristics. As Pastor David Platt puts it, we must be on guard against this sin because it is often subtle and almost unnoticed. Is it possible that we have when we have ignored the poor person, that we have also ignored Jesus in the process. The spiritual journey of someone who blazed a trail for the future generation has been widely ignored at the expense of the rich man who seems to offer more of an investment into our future. This should not be some sort of new revelation to you as this was taking place when Israel was looking for a king. It's the epitome of favoritism in 1 Samuel chapter 9 when the, the whole nation of Israel says, hey, you guys aren't doing a good job. Samuel, your two sons, they're worthless. They're terrible judges. We want one king who rules over us just like all the other nations. Do you see what's taking place right there? The people of Israel, God's chosen people, were asking to be like the rest of the world. It's too easy to be like the rest of the world, and it's not enough for them to not be like the rest of the world. And so all these other surrounding nations were developing this idea that one person could effectively rule over a people in a way that, le that led to, he to health, wealth, and happiness. But this developed into pointing a man who they thought could lead them to a further successful life. How did they pick this king? They said, we want someone not like you but someone like the world. And so Samuel, he's not happy because he's like, well, God is your king and you're wanting to dethrone God and you want to put someone else up there on a pedestal where they don't belong. And so he goes to God and God says to them, give them what they want. In fact, God says, obey the voice of the people in all that they say to you, for they have not rejected you, they have rejected me from being their king. 
And so Samuel takes them through this process of what a king will do. He will take your boys and make them soldiers. He will take your girls and they will become servants in the palace. He'll take your livestock. He'll take a portion of your money each month. And these are the things that Samuel kept giving to them as this way of describing like what you think will lead to freedom will actually lead to further slavery. And they're like, yeah, 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 that's fine, that's fine. We don't care. We want to be like everyone else. They, they seem to be really happy. They really like this whole institution and establishment. This is great. And so 1 Samuel 9 says that there was a son whose name was Saul, a handsome young man. There was not a man among the people of Israel more handsome than he. From his shoulders upward, he was taller than any of the people. He was Israel's GQ man of the year. And with that type of resume, he was the perfect candidate for the position Through Saul's disobedience, however, it led God to being disappointed in him. So God told Samuel to find another king to take Saul's place. So God sends Samuel out to the family of Jesse, and he goes through all the brothers, and he's like, this, no, no, no. Like, I mean, talk about picking teams. Like, none of them got picked. And Samuel's like, hey, is there another son you got somewhere? He's like, oh, yeah, we got the little midget shepherd boy. Like, he's out in the flock, watching over all the sheep. You, You don't want that one. And he's like, no, bring him here. I want to see him. And immediately God says, that's the one. See, you see, God was reversing this role of favoritism almost and saying, I'm not going to give you your GQ guy. I'm going to give you your Reader's Digest guy or your TV guide guy on the front. And right here in 1 Samuel 16, the Lord said to Samuel, don't look on his appearance or on the height of his stature because I've already rejected that. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. It is all too characteristic of our sinful heart to excuse ourselves by trying to justify our circumstances as a way of how we respond to this. We want to excuse ourselves by justifying that this is not me. I don't have favoritism. I don't discriminate. This is not what I do. But we see that Scripture's characteristic response is to put a name to our sin. Theologian Sinclair Ferguson says, We are guilty of distinctions. Perhaps more bluntly put, we are guilty of discrimination, a form of sin that includes but is not limited to distinctions of race, color, gender, or bank account. This is something rooted in all of us, And maybe you're experiencing still this deep spiritual instability. Maybe the spiritual equilibrium is off and it needs calibration. Sinclair Ferguson continues by saying that there is a deep-seated perversity in us that needs to be exposed and put under the surgical scalpel if we are to be healed and to go on to spiritual maturity. Which leads us finally to living in liberty. The only way to remove favoritism from our hearts is to recognize that it's first there and then to have Christ remove it for us. So often the myth is that I must clean up my life, I must read the books, I must do all this work and all this effort so that I can finally present my life to Christ as worthy to be saved. I've done the work, I've cleaned up all the mess, my room is clean, now can I go play outside? That was my experience growing up all the time. Like, yeah, fine, that's great. I'm going to clean it up, which meant throwing everything under the bed and in the closet. And, of course, my parents got smart, and they started opening the closet and everything falling down on them. 
And that was the whole reality of my sin being exposed because I told them it was clean and it wasn't. And that was just the whole point of me being disobedient. But the whole point that had nothing to do with is that this reality of us living in liberty is knowing that it's not about us exposing someone else's sin, but us being able to see our sin exposed by the Spirit of God. Don't exclude someone from the gospel just because their sin is different than yours. We might sin differently from each other, but that doesn't mean that I exclude you from hearing the gospel. It doesn't mean that a a particular people group or a, a certain status of a group is not able to hear the gospel. In fact, I would say even so much further that those people are going to be the foolish thing that God uses of the world to confound us as the wise. You see, the gospel is crossing over the line of all prejudices. It's breaking every ideology that ever existed in our hearts when it comes to favoritism, because Jesus Christ has made himself available to all who would believe in him. John 6, 37 says that all that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. He doesn't accept one group of individuals and reject another. Romans 10, 13, for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. That task has then been appointed for mankind to be, one, the recipient of the gospel, and secondly, the messenger of the gospel. And so we must be willing to revolutionize the gospel in our culture by proclaiming to all, even those outside of our comfort zone. So what is it going to take to get you out of your comfort zone? What's it going to take to get you to a place where it's not looking at the... um, the needs of self or the needs of community, but the need of the individual that's right in front of you. You see, the church unites us together for the common goal of the gospel, which is to go out and to proclaim that good news to all races, to all gender, to all those who need to hear the good news of Christ. Because if God doesn't have favorites, then neither should I. And if God is desiring for all to be saved, then I should also. How can we allow these two things to affect our daily gospel living? It's what John Calvin calls the idle factory, that inside of us is a factory that is fabricating all these mimics and all these replicas of these idols that we have in our life. And so if you want to know what the idol of your heart is, look within and find what things are you reproducing in other people around you. Do more people know that from your reproduction of this idol in your heart or this God in your heart, that it is genuine, true discipleship and evangelism? Or is it a bend towards something else? Or is it this or is it that? You have to do that for yourself. You won't find it today. You may not find it tomorrow. But through the process of discipleship, through the process of sanctification, of being set apart from the world and set apart for God, that's what Romans 12 says. Don't follow that pattern of the world. Don't follow its custom. Don't follow that rhythm. Find the rhythm of Christ. Find the pattern of Christ and follow after that. So it's from that place where we pray and we ask God to unite our hearts to fear his name. Unite us to find what favoritism might exist in my heart as I've, having, I've been having to contemplate that all week. It's been really scary, not gonna, not gonna lie. I've got a lot of favoritism I didn't realize. And you know what's really good? For those of you that are married, your spouse knows what, what you favor just this last week, my youngest, Avery, she comes to me and she said, Dad, who's your favorite, me or Finley? And I was like, well, neither. Like, neither. No, 
you need to tell me. I'm like, no, I do not. She's like, well, you must have a favorite. Everyone loves favorite things. I don't know where she got this. I mean, I mean, clearly there's something favorite about her. And so I'm like, well, I love you both the same. And she's like, no, that's not true. And I'm like, what? Like, who are you? She's five years old. How do you know what I favor and don't favor? And so we had this conversation about favoritism and things like that. And I was like, man, I hope that she doesn't sense a favoritism towards her or away from her or that my daughter feels that same way. But it's easy to have favoritism in our heart that bends us towards one and not towards the other. And so from that, we recognize that the favoritism that exists in our heart might be there and we just didn't recognize it, but you can find it by asking someone, do you sense favoritism in my life? And be okay with that answer and be honest with that answer. And like we mentioned a few weeks ago from that psalm that David wrote, search me, O God, and know my heart, know my thoughts. See if there's any wicked deed inside of me. Do that introspect inside of who I am rather than blaming the external uh, experience of someone else, blaming you for favoritism. Go to God and see what those things might look like. Let's pray together.